Welcome to Voices with Freeze, brought to you by modern luxury shopping destination, Matches Fashion. I'm Rebecca Siegel, Director of Americas and Content at Freeze, and in this series, I'll be talking to experts and insiders from LA as we launch this year's digital first edition of Freeze Los Angeles. I'll speak to four creatives based here who will guide you around the city and the unique constellation of galleries, sites, and secrets that make Los Angeles such a special place for art and culture. In this episode, I'm speaking to Alex Tiegi Walker, founder of Tiwa Select, a gallery and archive supporting self-taught artists and traditional folk practices. Originally from Wales, Alex spent time living in Northern Italy, Mumbai, and the Bay Area before moving to LA. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Um, tell me a little bit about your background. I know that you are very invested in folk art and crafts movements and just sort of curious how that brought you to Los Angeles. I was raised in Wales, which is one of the few places in the United Kingdom that still champions and celebrates folk art. So my entire childhood was spent sort of traipsing around folk craft museums, visiting textile mills, visiting sort of active artists in sort of the region that were still making things. Uh, So it's always been a sort of bubbling interest. Um, And it wasn't until a trip to Japan a couple of years ago, which also really celebrates its folk heritage, um, that I realized the sort of the sort of latent passion that I'd had there. Um, So I got back to Northern California, uh, which is where I was living at the time in Berkeley, um, in a beautiful old redwood cabin um, that sort of naturally ended up becoming almost sort of a gallery of objects that I'd been collecting. So people would sort of come over and, and always sort of comment on the way that I'd curated the space and, and sort of put pieces together. I started going around Northern California and collecting more ceramics, more, you know, sort of traditional folk practices from this part of the world. And eventually it just got to the point where I was like, I'd kind of, I would like to do this full time. I want to make this my... Uh, not just a, an interest or a passion, but I'd like to make this my work. And Tiwa Select was born from that. Um, and rather than simply selling just antiques or just found objects, I wanted to start learning about who is still practicing these traditional, you know, work processes here in here in the States. And California in particular is really interesting because you have a lot of people who've come over from Europe, you know, who sort of came via the East Coast. You have a lot of people come from Asia. You have a lot of people coming from Latin America. And you have a lot of interest in um, folk craft practices. So it was really easy to start exploring and researching and discovering people who were continuing these traditions uh, here on the West Coast. Um, Recently, I've started broadening my search um, and I've been doing a lot of exploration in the South. Um, During the pandemic, I drove cross country and back four times, uh, mainly because I was going out of my mind with boredom and not being able to travel internationally. But I also thought it'd be a really great opportunity to learn a little bit more about the history of folk craft in the US. Um, You know, I'm by no means qualified to become an expert in the field unless I've actually gone out there and sort of witnessed it firsthand and sort of put in the work to learn about and educate myself about traditional folk craft practices. Across four trips, did you end up adding to your collection? Because it sounds a bit like you're a hoarder. And (laughs) I just want to clarify for everyone, what did you pick up across all these trips? I am entirely a hoarder. You know, a lot of what I was looking for in the South was obviously textiles. Um, you know, the the quilting tradition in the South, the, the African-American quilting tradition is so rich and, and fascinating. I was lucky enough to visit um, Guise Bend, 
which was an entire adventure. And I spent the afternoon with Marianne Petway learning about the, the, the collective, um, which is a lot smaller than it used to be, sadly, uh, but it's still very active. I work with a ceramicist called Jim McDowell, who is a black ceramicist making face jugs, uh, which was traditionally a West African um, art form that got brought over to the US through slavery. Um, slaves would make face jugs that they would use as grave markers. And it became adopted in the 19th century as a white art form. And Jim McDowell is in the process of reclaiming it. Um, but I spent a lot of my time sort of in North Carolina, which is sort of, you know, the, the epicenter of the sort of face jug movement, looking for face jugs, whether they were made by white artists or black artists, simply to get a bit more, you know, a bit more understanding about this art form. One of the things you brought up was the fact that this is a place where people from the East Coast, people mm -hmm. from South America, people from Asia have come and sort of, um, you know, created a... a in its own right, a melting pot. Mm -hmm. You are not an American. Um, to what extent do you sort of, uh, have you found a community here or are you do you sort of appreciate it sort of more as the outsider status of visiting Alabama? No, you know what? I, I don't think it's talked about enough outside of LA about how multicultural LA really is and how fascinating that is. You know, this is a city or a county where one in three residents wasn't even born in the USA and more people speak a language other than English at home. And that's really, you know, that isn't the reason why tourists come to LA. You know, I think Los Angeles sort of shouts a lot about the sort of the glamour and the movies and the music. But I actually think, to me, what is really fascinating is I, I feel very much like a food tourist here, even though I still live here. I rode my Vespa to Venice the other day. I don't have a car. I still ride a little bike, which I think has also given me a very interesting experience of LA because I really get to see it and I really get to smell it. And, you know, driving driving from Echo Park to Venice and just the number of sort of like street vendors selling food that you go past. But, you know, if you want some of the best dim sum in California, you can go out to Alhambra. If you want some of the most authentic Guadalajara tacos, you can go to Pasadena Avenue in Lincoln Heights and find them. Um, you know, my my sort of my little lunch spot where I go a lot of the time is Indian sweets and spices in Atwater Village, which is one of the most authentic Indian meals I've had outside of India or London. You know, you can really find those cultures very easily here in LA. And, you know, not just through food, but also visually, you know, you go to downtown and blur your eyes for a moment and you might not be in California. And I love that about this place. It feels like it's always an adventure. It feels very transportive a lot of the time. Um, you know, my father's Italian. I spent a lot of my childhood in Italy as well. And there are moments that I just truly, riding around on my bike, feel like I could be in a suburb in Naples or riding around the Cinque Terre when you're sort of riding the back hills of Silver Lake on a bike, smelling the Mediterranean flowers and the sage. You know, it's a very, it's a very evocative city. It really evokes a lot of senses and, and that's why I love it. I would ask sort of on behalf of everybody listening, sort of where do we go to sort of deep dive into the kinds of artistic practices you've really sort of made the focal point of your work? I'm always surprised by the number of, um, I guess, sort of folk art monuments that you have around LA in a way that I hadn't encountered in other cities where maybe planning is a little bit more rigorous. You know, I when I first moved to Los Angeles, I lived... Uh, in a really small little valley in Lincoln Heights called Flattop. And this valley was fascinating because the hillside was owned by a church called Foursquare and has been owned by this church for about 80 years. 
And they own the land because they built a television and a radio tower where they still, um, you know, they're still transmitting Christian radio and TV. But this hillside is entirely undeveloped. And you're stood on this raw hillside that's by all means an informal park. It's never been formalized. You still have wild melon, wild grapes, wild um, corn growing on this hillside. You know, which it's the original ecology of Los Angeles. You're watching the Arroyo Seco meet with the Los Angeles River. You can sort of see how those rivers carved out Mount Washington, carved out Chavez Ravine. You really get a sense of the geography of Los Angeles. But because it's this sort of wild Western patch where there's just been no regulation, you have a whole load of artists who've sort of passed through, who've built structures on top of this hillside. And it almost makes you feel like you're in Bombay Beach or sort of on the banks of the Salton Sea in the sense that you have sort of, you know, you have these make-do shrines and you have these very impromptu installations. There's a row of bus shelters that just face the sunset. And not many people discover this part of Los Angeles. It's, it's truly only if you're living in that little valley or someone's tipped you off about it. And it's amazing. There's, there's an entire tree with... Uh, really dirty, gross, cuddly animals sort of like hanging from the branches, but it's also creepily beautiful. Um, and there, you know, there's a number of these little impromptu monuments, some are more formal than others, but I feel like Los Angeles, because it is, you know, it is such a vast city, you're always going to find people doing these sort of strange, uh, fascinating little projects that they, they don't really expect many people to see. I would imagine that they're all set up to be quite personal too. They're not meant to be sort of, when we think about monuments, we think about things which are sort of in the center, or at least from a European perspective, they are things that are in the center of massive public squares and they are um, often to, um, you know, memorialize or or aggrandize a figure or a moment in time, as opposed to something which is, um, as you said, more personal and not necessarily for an external audience so much as it's for the people in that community. A more famous example of something that had a very personal uh, beginning, but has become a little bit more popular these days, or is certainly on people's radar, is the are the Watts Towers. Uh, you know, this was a um, Sabato Radia started this project. He was working at a ceramic studio, collecting the scraps. Uh, you know, the broken china, building these structures, some of which are ninety feet high. You know, the, the sort of urban legend is that local children would bring bits of pottery and glass that they'd find, found because they wanted it to be incorporated into the artwork. But you have this very personal, kind of nonsensical, fascinating monument where you've no idea why it was necessarily built, but it was built and it's beautiful and it's strange. And then, you know, I don't know if it, this technically counts as folk art, but another monument that I really love is Peter Shire's uh, Angel's Point Monument, which was built in tribute to Grace Simons, who was one of the people that really preserved Elysian Park as a public space. Um, there were a lot of people in the 60s and 70s who wanted to develop Elysian Park. You already had the Dodgers Stadium going up, but there were plans to build another football stadium. There were even plans to sort of extract oil. And Grace Simons really preserved this this area of green, which I'm lucky enough to live two blocks away from. And sort of see it as my central park in the sense that it's just this, you know, it's this beautiful expanse. And Peter Shire constructed this monument to her, uh, which looks, you know, it has parallels to Watts Towers. It feels like it was cobbled together from bits of local junk. The entire structure is built around a palm tree that acts as one of the supports for the building. Um, it is this, this 
this monument is constantly vandalized, which I actually think sort of adds to the charm in a way. And occasionally the city will repaint it white. So you also have this incredible sort of white gray patina from all the various sort of fixer upper moments. Um, but you know, it's just this kooky little monument that has no real, there's no plaque telling you what it means, why it's there. It's just something, you know, it's, it's not in the guidebooks. It's just something you'll stumble upon if you're walking through the hills of Elysian Park. You know, it has one of the best views of Los Angeles and you're just there underneath this bizarre, strange, folk arty type monument. Tell me, is there a spot in Los Angeles that you would recommend everybody sort of um, need to go to to see it through your lens? Interesting, because that's definitely going to be very different from what my favorite place in Los Angeles is. What's um, your favorite place? My favorite place is the Huntington Gardens. It's one of very few places on planet Earth you know, I'm I'm not necessarily a sort of stoic British person, but I certainly don't cry when something's beautiful. Um, and the Huntington Gardens broke me. I mean, that cactus garden is truly one of the most spectacular places in North America. And I love, you know, the, the sort of the recently restored galleries. I think it's a really incredible institution. Can I ask what you're reading right now? Uh, I am reading a book called uh, Trees in Paradise, which is a history of California told through trees. So the book splits the historical, ecological, and cultural context of California down into four different trees. Um, it's really magical. Tell me more. <laughs> I, I mean, I would assume that palm trees feature prominently in some capacity. Palm trees are tree number four. So the first tree is the redwood, and that chapter talks about the geology of California and the you know the, the geological history. The second tree is the eucalyptus, which was an imported tree, does not grow naturally here. And that chapter talks about all the different groups that have ended up living in California, all the different cultures and communities. Um, and, you know, why California has become such a melting pot. Um, the third tree is the citrus tree. And that talks about the one of the main industries of California, which is agriculture. Um, and then the fourth tree is the palm tree, which uh, isn't a tree. Uh, I learned through this book, it's a grass. Um, and it's a pretty useless grass. You can't burn it. You can't really build from it. It doesn't offer you shade. But some, for some reason, it's become the emblem of glamour. And um, probably you know, because it's useless, right? <laughs> probably because it's useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what, what better definition of glamour? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've really, you know, California is a very is a very mesmerizing place, and Los Angeles is a very mesmerizing city. And I've done a lot of my uh, sort of bookshelf since living here has been occupied by books that talk about the history or what California means and what it means to live here. Um, you know, when I first moved here, I was reading all the sort of John Muir uh, books. Um, is it Rainer Bannum, the Four Ecologies? You know, a lot. there's a lot to read about California. Um, and I don't know if, unless you were raised here, you'll ever truly understand it, which I think is also the magic. Like, I don't think you should always understand where you live. Thank you, Alex, so much for this. I cannot appreciate enough the book list and also just the um, a different way of thinking about getting around the city to see sort of the things on the ground that may have been made personally but are there for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices from Freeze with me, Rebecca Siegel. Please hit subscribe to receive future episodes and share it with anyone else you think might enjoy. To find out more about Matches Fashion and Freeze, 
Head to matchesfashion.com and freeze.com or join the conversation online by searching for at matches fashion and at matches under man.